Hello to the listeners of the Shoe Leather Politics Podcast with Jacob Edwards King. My name is Benjamin Kitchings, and I do a podcast called The History Voyager. Jacob asked me to talk to you about the politics of Georgia in light of the runoff that's going to happen on Tuesday, the senatorial runoff, that is. And I was only too happy to oblige. In 2006, I had detected a difference in the white political vote in my home state of Georgia, especially concentrated in the metro Atlanta area. This was so long ago now that people at the time thought I was slightly crazy for even suggesting that there was a difference in the white vote between metro Atlanta and the rest of Georgia. Of course, these days, that's basically a common trope and a common talking point around here with pundits and citizenry alike. The secret, it turns out, to unlocking something about the world is simply to live long enough to have your idea be picked up on by a greater majority of more famous thinkers. So here's the deal. I'm not qualified to discuss with you what Georgia has been doing to suppress the votes of the black and brown populations in Georgia. However, I did interview King Williams for my podcast. He appeared on my podcast twice. King Williams is a man who runs two nonprofits, one to register people to vote and one to deliver food to the polls in Georgia which is something that needs to be done, especially in black and brown and poor or white rural neighborhoods, because they just have a devil of a time voting, to be quite honest with you, because of systemic steps that Georgia has taken to make it harder for poor people, be they black, brown, or white, to vote. They do this through exact matching of signatures. They do this through... Um, closing polling places in rural areas and centralizing polling places in rural areas. And, you know, also, we exist now in a world after the Civil Rights Act. And since then, so many things have been done across the country to suppress not just the black and brown vote in this country, but also the poor white vote. This has created, as it turns out, a, a strange sort of consensus amongst a lot of the voters. And also, something else King Williams was kind enough to speak with me on was something I had no idea because I've lived in metro Atlanta essentially my whole life, which is that once you cross out of a certain region of metro Atlanta and you travel south you have effectively entered into a world of underfunded schools because we fund schools locally in this state. And what that means is you've entered into a different cognitive space among, say, the school age and young adult population and also into the older adult population if they had been educated in those counties. And again... You know, this adds up to all kinds of what I see as, as just strange campaign ads that don't register with me at all as anything I need to be concerned about 
um, from my elected officials. But a good number of people in the rural areas and in the poorer areas of Georgia um, seem to think that these things are things they need to care about. And I go into this a little bit with um, Jacob Edward, Edwards King in this politics podcast. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about that I didn't get a chance to talk about with Jacob Edwards King is that the fact of how big Atlanta is, how big that is, Metro Atlanta is, has been a serious political fight in this state for decades, and it has been effectively waged by both political parties, be they Republican or be they Democrat. However, I would be remiss in telling you that the Democratic Party in the state of Georgia used to be very conservative. It effectively, functionally, was the a sort of facsimile of the modern Republican Party today. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this podcast, and as I tell my listeners, I'm having a great day, and I hope you are too. I'm going to give Jacob links to both of these podcasts that I do with King, King Williams, as well as two podcasts I do with a fellow named Alex Johnson, who is a very smart man indeed. Alex Johnson was the man who enlightened me on the subject of what we call the Black Belt in Georgia. Now, that is a region of the state where the soil is very fertile and also traditionally where a lot of rural blacks were forced to live because of slavery. And so I'm going to give him the links to two of those podcasts with Alex Johnson as well as two podcasts with King Williams. And as, again, as I tell all of my listeners, I'm having a good day and I hope you are too. Um, you should come by the History Voyager podcast and listen to me talk to people and also listen to me talk about COVID-19 and the Spanish flu. All right. Have a good day. Bye-bye. This call is now being recorded. You're listening to a Shoe Leather Politics conversation with Ben Kitchens from the History Voyager, and we're going to discuss Georgia and Georgia politics. Okay. Um, hey, Jacob, how you doing? Uh, doing great. Okay, so am I. All right, well, to start with, we need to talk about, um, and it's unfortunate that we call it this, um, and when they named it this, it wasn't thought of as racist. But to start with, we need to call, talk about something called the Black Belt, which refers to both the large population of African Americans as well as the soil in Georgia. Um, and that was the moneymaker for this state for many, many, many years. And if you wouldn't mind, the email I sent you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'll post the links to the maps. Okay, if you if you don't have it, um, so it's you can actually see it on the topographical map that there's a a green band going through the middle of the state, starting at South Carolina, going diagonally all the way down to Alabama, which fits in with a band of soil that 
does a similar type of thing right across the Mississippi River. Um, now, essentially, that is a different soil from the rest of the state. It's a very fertile soil. It's a very, uh, it was the moneymaker in this state uh, since before it was a state, since it was a colony, um, into the 90s. And to this day, um, here we are in 2021, to this day, our major, uh, the major part of our economy is still agriculture, uh, irrespective of Atlanta or Savannah or any of that. It's still agriculture, okay? So um, there was a gov- – we've had uh, several good governors right in a row, um, which – irrespective of how you think of their politics or their policies or whatever, they tended to have the state of Georgia as a whole front and center in their, in their thinking. Now you might not have liked some of their rhetoric and you might not have liked their stances on a few things, but as far as the economics of of the state of Georgia, uh, they had that sort of front and center. Um, Now, and you you can't talk about any of those governors without talking about Zell Miller. Now Zell Miller was at that point in time an interesting creature in the state of Georgia. He was an interesting uh political creature in Georgia politics. He was uh from a, a tiny mountain town called Young Harris. Um now I don't know if this led into his thinking or not, other than the fact that he was a tireless advocate for public education in this state. And he was what you might want to think of as the last New Deal Democrat the state had, okay? He would routinely talk about, uh, in glowing terms, about SDR. And he would talk all the time about how his, he would he, his family would be isolated and poor and just destitute if it weren't for the policies of FDR, okay, and public mm-hmm. education. He was his his father died when he was a very tiny baby of um, a disease, um, disease. I forget the disease, but essentially he was raised by his grandmother and his mother um, on his mother's side. Now, young Harris, not ideologically, but physically, is about as far from this, what you want to call the black belt, as you can get in the northern part of the state. Okay, so the thing about northern Georgia is that it's rocky. It's not anywhere. It's very rocky. It's in the Appalachians. So it's not good for large-scale commercial agriculture. Um, so those people have always had to, I guess, kind of make it on their wits or use their brain or whatever. Um, so that brand of conservatism, and when I say conservatism, I don't mean republic, I don't mean conservatism the way you think of it today, the way it's thought of today. I mean, these were conservative people. They were a conservative lot. Okay. Yeah, I think. I think people forget that FDR's voting blocks were poor white conservatives at the South and working class conservative factory workers in the North, that it wasn't yeah. a voting block that we see today. 
Right. It wasn't actually really a, a voting bloc we see today. So basically the, the, the conservatives in the North Georgia mountains were, were very, very skeptical. Now, now, see if you can recognize any tendencies. Okay. The conservatives in the North Georgia mountains were very, very skeptical of, of, uh, any big city. They were skeptical of central authority. They were, they were very skeptical of, of Washington. Uh, there were, there was a county in far, far northwest Georgia, which actually is on the border between Tennessee, Alabama, and Georgia, that did not re-enter the Union until the New Deal. Okay? So, so basically, you would think if you had to give a lens to these people with modern in a modern toolkit, you would you would call them libertarian. If you wanted to call them that at all, you would call them libertarian. That gives your closest approximation. And that's not really accurate because they wouldn't have been okay. Like they were very much uh, so. Okay, my grandfather. His father and also my grandmother's, well, my grandmother's father's father, okay, decided to, uh, my grandmother's father's father decided to leave the North Georgia mountains because his boys couldn't make a living doing anything other than moonshine. And he did not want his boys doing moonshine. Okay. So that gives you some kind of an idea how isolated these communities actually were. Okay. The country out there. They were. The country. They they were. They were not 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 as much anymore. Not not so much anymore. But we'll get into that in a second. Uh we'll get into that further down the road. All right. So Zell Miller was a Democrat. He was a New Deal Democrat, but he was very much um in the mold of he was a fiscal conservative. He honestly believed it was the people's money, and he was just taking care of it for a while. But it was the yeah, people's I mean, money. I mean, people have to understand this is pre-Nixon flipping the parties with, with those voting. So the solid South was Democratic four years, and FDR fit into that, was from that, aligned with that. This is what, like, we think of the South being solid Republican today. There's obviously later down the road a huge shift that flips that. Okay. Now, okay. Now let's fast forward to approximately the 1930s. Okay. Okay. Right now, in the beginning of FDR, right? I don't remember the exact year. I used to know the year. But in the 1930s, there was a postal route that was given, there was an air postal route that was given to Atlanta. And it didn't make a lot, at the time, it didn't make a lot of sense to give it to Atlanta. Um, mm-hmm. it, and because it, it was a federal route, not a state route, okay? But they gave it to Atlanta. And in doing that, they kicked off the airport. They, they upgraded, they made the airport more prestigious for practical reasons, practical things. Yeah. All right. When you think of Atlanta, you have to think of the airport. 
Okay, you have to think. And the airport, by the way, uh, Hartsfield-Jackson Airport, is actually enshrined in Georgia law as the airport for Metro Atlanta. If you want, if they want to build a human being airport, an airport that human beings go to, not packages, uh, but human beings, mm-hmm. um, they have to change the law. They will have to change the law. And they pointed that out, I think it was last year. No, it wasn't. It was two years ago. It was 19. They pointed that out because we need a new airport. Uh, <laughs> we need an additional <laughs> airport. Well, we need an additional airport because it's, it, there's a lot of people. And yeah, it's, no, it's, it's one of those laws that much later down the road, you're like, grr. Well, I mean, okay, and there were reasons at the time that they, that made sense. Okay, um, mm-hmm. so anyway, we're now, we're now in the 30s. Okay, so you create the postal route, you've kicked off, you've made Atlanta a little bit bigger. Atlanta was already a railroad town. Uh, contrary to popular opinion in this town, Atlanta was never um was never anything was never supposed to be well it was not supposed to be a small town contrary to popular opinion this when the state founded Atlanta um <laughs> yeah. it was always exactly yeah it's not savannah well okay savannah was the largest <clears throat> was the largest city in georgia for Years. Most of the 20th century. Until I think the 50s. I'm not sure. I could be wrong there. Um, okay. Now. Now. Um, so we've, we've talked, we've touched on the airport. We've touched on the fact that this, the legislature basically designed this city as the capital. Um, and that, Okay, and so that gets us to another piece I want to talk about, which is the the types of humans, the types of specifically white people that you're going to encounter in Georgia, traditionally speaking. So in the southeast part of the state, you can find white people and black people, more black people than white people, but white people too whose ancestors landed in Savannah or landed in Charleston or landed somewhere on the coast, and those people never left, okay? Like, those families never left. You can find a lot of that. Yep. Okay? Um, And that's especially true with black people. Now, when you come to the northwest Georgia, which is where Atlanta is, Okay, and we're going to dig into those maps in a minute. But when you come to the metro, when you come to northwest Georgia, a lot of those people didn't come from Savannah, right? They came from the mountains. They came, they literally walked into Georgia from North Carolina or Tennessee, okay, or in some cases, South Carolina. All right? So already you have different groups of people with different family allegiances, and that's important. Okay, lots and lots of people paper over that, but that's important. No, I mean, it's okay. important to anybody. Yeah, so you're already dealing with two different populations of, of white people right there, okay? And you can also hear it in how they talk. Um, when you listen to a person from southeast Georgia 
they sound a lot smoother. And a person from northwest Georgia where I'm sitting will sound, you know, with a with a harder R, but still with a southern accent. Uh-huh. But with I'm a harder. curious if outside of Georgia, I would all the way in Washington, if I would pick up on this or not. I'll be looking. I'll be hearing for it from now on, but I'm not. Well, I don't I mean, know if I would differentiate. You would with my father's generation. Okay. You would with my father's generation and and beyond, like further back. But with my generation, perhaps not. Um, which gets me into um, okay. So now we're going to fast forward all the way into the 1970s when basically what you had was not an unprecedented move in terms of the country, in terms of our national history, but in terms of the state of Georgia, it was certainly an unprecedented influx of people that started okay. that started essentially, if you want to go back, it started – at the end of World War II, and it yeah. it was basically a trickle, and then it was by about the Nixon era. The Nixon himself actually believed that Atlanta would expand, and this was over and above um, what his own government was telling him. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, of the people I would as a as a as a scholar of my hometown, my, my mother's people, like I just told you, my mother's people walked into this state from North Carolina about 1810. And basically all of my mother's ancestors were born in what you would think of as exurban Atlanta now. <laughs> okay. So, but Nixon believed Atlanta was going to get a lot bigger than even his own government. But he didn't know how big it was going to get. He didn't understand how big it was going to get. Okay. So this slow trickle of growth, the game changed in on a day in the 70s. There's an actual day in the 1970s <laughs> where these people, and this is one of the weirdest moments in American history, these people, these families living in Michigan, um, woke up one morning and left. Michigan lost a whole lot of people essentially on the same day. And it's called the Michigan Diaspora. And if you look at a map, Atlanta, Georgia was one of the bigger towns you could get to on 75, I-75. Mm-hmm. Um, even then. Okay. Now, and I've had an argu- I've had many arguments with many college professors over the years, but the fact is a college degree limits you. It doesn't limit you in terms of what you, what you can do in your off hours. It limits you with where you can live. So yeah. if you're, if you're a dentist, because it was the, it was the dentists and the lawyers and the accountants that were leaving right. Michigan. So the okay. white collar left Michigan during the the what was I guess coined now the white flight. Well, no, what white flight was a separate um, a separate phenomenon. I mean, it was folded in with that. Yeah, but what, that's what, I'm what I, 
What I'm talking quite, quite about the loss of the white collar out of the core of Detroit during that time period. Yeah. Well, what I'm talking about is is this, and literally, it started literally on a single day. There's an actual day of the week in nineteen like 1978. Or Probably has to do with traffic. <laughs> well, and actually, there's a photo you can see it. It's called. Yeah. Um, there's a photo of all these cars going south on 75, and. <laughs> You know, I mean, to me, without knowing a bunch about it, I would assume that we just, without social media, don't think that people coordinated this without all that. But they probably did. It's probably some people who networked together and decided to leave on the same day. It was probably, I'll tell you, looking back, and I've studied this quite a bit, because it, it does really lead into the formation of my hometown, uh, the, the modern formation of my hometown. Probably on some level, it was probably coordinated among individual groups or individual families. But when we're talking about the the people, the amount of people that left, I don't yeah. think the amount – it's not like I think – call it 2 million people because it was a whole lot of people, Yep. right? I don't think 2 million people sat up and thought, well, we're all going to leave on the same day. What no, I do think no. is that enough people, you know, you, you enough. You have like a kernel, a couple people playing, and then essentially you have a mean before means where everybody's like, these other people are leaving the same day. That sounds like a good idea. And people heard mentality before social media. Right. Well, so, okay. So what happened was, so what happened was they, um, when you go on 75, uh, Atlanta is one of the bigger, it's one of the first big towns you come to from Detroit, believe it or not. So Cobb County was where a lot of these people ended up. And the reason why, and I'm going to say this out loud where there's people on your podcast, Fulton County had white flight of its own, okay? Yeah. Um, and I think, if I'm not mistaken... When this started, it was technically illegal for blacks to even live in Cobb County. Yep. I think Pretty if likely. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, if I'm because I know that was on the books. I know that was literally on the books in Cobb County, and they they took it off. I remember them taking it off, and they took it off after blacks. You know, it was kind of one of those let's all, let's all modernize the. The rules kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, you probably had some people challenging it, and then it gets looked at again, and in this case, taken off rather than enforced. Right, rather than not enforced. So, okay, so they they settled in the Cobb County. Now, what this did was it turned Cobb County. Over the years, it turned Cobb County Republican. Now mm -hmm. you got to think about so Newt Gingrich, the the famous uh, yep. acolyte of Reagan, he was. He represented Cobb County. Yeah. Okay, he represented Cobb County. He represents, I believe, and let me just, just if I can just peek ahead here, the district that he represents today, a lot of the, a lot of what we call the, the, uh, demographic or popular weight of that district. So that district is not drawn on the map now, but the, yeah. the, the popular weight, the people, most of the people in that district live in a district represented by Lucy McBath today, who is uh, the, 
an African-American woman who was a, she wants more gun safety because her yes. son was shot by a police officer. She's a and, gun control advocate. Yeah, I would say. So, I mean, that'll, that'll clue you in. That, that's a little bit of a clue as to what I'm talking about. Yeah. As far Amazing as... Amazing how maps can be redrawn and radically changed. Well, part of that, and part of it is that, um, and we can get into this more if you want, but, and I do, but part of it is the, um, one of the, one of the things that started to happen after, uh, Zell Miller did what he did, which was he, the thing Zell Miller did that is important, the reason I brought up the, what I, what we unfortunately call the black belt, which is, has to do with the soil as much as the people, okay, is he looked at the the tax receipts coming in from the crops in the black belt, and he realized, okay, we've maxed this out, you know. We yep. have maxed out our tax receipts from this. Okay, if I want Georgia to continue to grow, and I do, and I we need to, you know, invest in education, so he did. And, okay, I'm a graduate of Georgia State University. Uh, Georgia State University had, for reasons that I could get into, but don't really have to do with who I think is going to win the election on Tuesday, um, Georgia State University was at war with the Board of Regents for years, literally for decades. The Board of Regents was trying <laughs> to close it. Yeah. Okay. So the Board of Regents was trying to close it. So Zell Miller reached a deal with Georgia State and the Board of Regents and everything. And he, he came up with the Hope Scholarship. Now, because Georgia State could exist outside the Board of Regents, they could essentially make up their own requirements. Okay? They could make up their own graduation requirements because they didn't weren't inside the Board of Regents, essentially. They they had their own money. They had their own money stream because of Atlanta, the Atlanta yep. business community, okay? So the deal was, the deal that was reached was the legislature says, when you look at the Georgia legislature, the legislature said, okay, there are two, we have to fund two colleges in the state of Georgia. We have to fund Georgia Tech, which is the mechanical college, and we have to fund the University of Georgia in Athens, which is the agricultural college. Okay? Yep. So the deal was Georgia State, which was originally started out as a night school, okay, they said, okay, we don't, we're not going to put you in that law. But what we will do is we'll say that you're now on the same par with Georgia and Georgia, and Georgia Tech. So that's how the Hope Scholarship came into existence, was to bring Georgia State within the Board of Regents. Okay, that was a major part of it. Now, when you do that, when you've created this research university in the heart of downtown Atlanta, and you have another research university in the heart of downtown Atlanta, okay, so you have two research universities, the heart of downtown Atlanta, and you have a research university that is pretty close to Atlanta, but it's not, it's not, you know, Timbuktu. Yep. <laughs> you know, so you have these three colleges. 
Okay. You have, there's a medical school in, there's Emory. Okay, that's the third research college. Emory has a law school, a hmm. medical school. The state I don't know of why Georgia, I never associated Emory with Georgia. Well, it's in Georgia. I'm, I'm learning this. I just never thought and realized it. It's in Decatur. It's in Decatur. Not that, that helps me, but. Decatur, uh, Decatur is literally uh, a street over from Atlanta. Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's kind of funny because for somebody living far away from Georgia, the Association of Georgia is not preeminent research colleges. Well, that's because Atlanta is not Georgia, and I'm going to get into that in a second. <laughs> All right. I'm going to – well, no, it is, okay, look. I'm a native – I'm a native Georgian, okay? Yeah. I'm a native Georgian. My family's native to Georgia. All right. Yeah, okay, fine, it is. But I'm going to get into what I just said in a second, all right? I think I know from where I'm from, but I'll let you go. Okay, so <laughs> here we go. Okay, so you have you have UGA, you have, that's University of Georgia, you have Georgia Tech, you have, you have Emory, you have Georgia State, you also have... Um, Morehouse Medical School, because the state of Georgia, I forget if they allowed Morehouse Medical School or they, they kick it money or whatever, but they decided in the early 20th century, they decided that they needed to have a college for black doctors. So Morehouse has a medical school. Okay, I'm so. Gonna, I'm going to have to point out another history piece. Is that the South has often been the differentiating vote like we see today, which means you get lots of money for programs like this. The South well, they got have. lots of FDR, New Deal money. They got lots of specific things they wanted to in that legislation. We see it today. Is this, these, I mean, these Senate seats that we're going to come up and talk about and vote on are going to differentiate politics. Those senators are going to be incredibly powerful to get little things written in for them. Well, okay, so the point is that you have all these highly educated people, and we're not even touching on Oglethorpe or Agnes mm -hmm. Scott or any, any of the other colleges, which taken together the colleges around in and around Atlanta, I think are like the fourth largest employer of Metro Atlanta. I believe it. So, you know, we're not talking about a – you know, we're talking about a highly educated city, essentially. Yeah. Um, those people that migrated to Cobb County and, and later Gwinnett and North Fulton and all, all over the place, those people, and they weren't just coming from Michigan. They were coming from all over. Right? Yeah. Those people liked Georgia because Georgia was small government. Georgia was low taxes. Georgia was basically allowed local control of the um, the county education system, and they liked that. And the reason they liked it specifically was because it could allow them to take over their county uh, education board, basically set up a better education curriculum than the whole rest of the state had. Really, it's just the idea that 
you can set up the education within your county that best fits the people within your county, whether that be, like you're saying, mirroring something that was set up in the north or something that you would just prefer. It, I think it's a huge issue for living. I mean, people well, now homes let, by schools. Let me, okay, well, I'm going to push back on that. <laughs> I'm going to push back on that uh, a little bit. I grew up in DeKalb County. Um, I went to school in northern DeKalb County. I had a teacher who taught biology who had been a he'd been a PhD working at um working in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, okay? So I learned evolution in school. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by I don't think local control is necessarily a good idea. Do you think that it is better to enforce a particular way of thinking because of the people who uh, didn't want to teach evolution were in charge of the state. No one would learn evolution. Okay, and I, I hear what you're saying. And, yeah, okay, fine. The way it ended up for Metro Atlanta, anywho, mm-hmm. was a good little workaround. Okay, let's, yeah. not, let's, not, let's not kid ourselves. No, but, I, mean, I mean, to me, I don't think that those are – reasons that the majority of people should always think that their ideas are superior. Okay, That's but, my difficulty with the state okay. education. And and here's where where and you're going to I'm going to push okay. I live in basically and you can see it on this map. I live in a blueberry on a on a steak, on a red yeah. steak, okay? You can look at the uh, the political ads that only just recently stopped, I think as of today. <laughs> um, and that's probably not right, but whatever. Um, and you can see the Republican ads. Well, let's try to be okay. My friends and I, and my friends and I that I, that I made in school, that I made in college, and my friends that I made in, as an adult, and my friends that I made in high school, and I can look at the, the Republican ads, and we can say, they're not going to take our guns. You know, of course we want them to follow the scientists. Okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, why would you not want them to, you know, there's an ad, one of, I forget which one, but one of the, one of our, one of the Republican senator people once says, Vote for me because Biden's going to follow the scientists. And so I look at that and say, well, of course, Biden. I mean, why would you not want Biden to follow the scientists? Yeah. All right. Okay. Those um, are playing off the worst stereotypes of each other. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, <laughs> um, Okay, and we've we've skipped ahead here for a second, but <laughs> but here we but we're just going to go with it, all right? Uh, um. So essentially, what I've learned by going all over, by calling all over the place, and talking to people, is that there is a difference between when we say the word liberal, uh, or conservative in this country, depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. Um. A conservative in my state, if I said the word conservative, what I would be saying is somebody that, somebody who, let me say this the right way, 
somebody who wanted the government to stay out of their lives entirely. Um, somebody who essentially looks at uh, expert who look who looks at things like um, like for example they might want uh, prayer in schools and they might want yeah. um, well they would want probably prayer in, religious conservatives probably well right until very recently conservatives very yeah very much very very much. And they yeah. don't. They don't think that uh, there needs to be a safety net at all. You know, or yeah. it's not that they don't think there needs to be a safety net. They think that the safety net they have is fine. And, and the one they use is okay and legitimate. I mean, this is true across spectrums of politics. Exactly. It's just it's just now, more apparent from the group calling to end all the other ones. Okay. Now, okay. The other thing. Now, remember, I said. Remember, I said local control in the schools. Uh-huh. Now, I I spoke with a man who can talk about the black side of what's going to happen on Tuesday ad nauseum, and I'm just going to paraphrase what he said. When you come out of he he was able to he he crisscrosses the state, okay? He crisscrosses the state. He runs two different nonprofits, one of which registers people to vote. He named a specific town in Metro Atlanta. And he said, when you come out of that state, that town and you head south, you've entered into a new world. You've entered into a different world. And that is the world where, you know, these these pictures of Nancy Pelosi wearing a mask and these pictures of uh, Chuck Schumer wearing a mask and these pictures of uh, Joe Biden wearing a mask uh, play very, very different from how they would where I was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you, you have a, a a quick shift in politics geographically. Very, very fast. Very, very, exactly right. Very, very fast. Now, I now. would say that we briefly talked Washington politics. I don't want to get into too much, but we are also one blueberry on a sea of red. So a lot of these things are very similar. And a lot of, okay, a lot of this is, this is the way the country is. Yeah. I mean, a whole lot of this is this is the way the country is. Mm-hmm. And in that respect, we're not too different. But here's where we might be, well, not not so much different as very, very, very the same. Like more... <laughs> <laughs> more the same than we realize. Well, we're not so much different as we are... When you come out of, say, Metro Atlanta, you run into you run into people of all of either white or black, who have been, you're liable to run into people of white or black extraction, especially when you go south, okay? You'll run into people of white or black extraction that have lived in that county since before it was a county. Yep. All right? Especially as you go west. Okay. So you'll live, um, you'll find people who live, on, who've lived on the same road, whose families lived on the same road since. You yeah, know, those routes are different than out west because there's just not that many okay. generations of settlement. Now, now when you're that different out west, you're gonna think, you're gonna think differently in ways in ways I can't adequately explain. It. It's like it would offend you to to change your opinion from your father, from your grandfather, who's not no, even I alive. Mean, 
That is definitely prevalent. I would say the difference is, is that we're a hundred percent okay with like moving, especially in the, the urban areas because we don't have the roots. My family lived in the house for their generation. If I move, it's not a big deal. Oh no, I'm, that's the same as it is here. I mean, and we can get into that if you want to. Yeah. But, um, but I mean, it is, the, the time is different, but like, People who live in the farming areas of eastern Washington had lived there for two or three generations and had that same sort of attitude, but they got pushed out by Hispanics immigrating from the border. And now most of those towns in the eastern farm belt of Washington are Hispanic towns. Wow. So a good place to go. Okay, and that brings up a, another good point. Um, basically, I like to say quite glibly, though also very seriously, whether or not you are a conservative or a liberal, or I'll say a conservative or a Democrat, because I think liberal and leftist are two different things, mm-hmm. um, depends on how you react to the to the sentence, a taco truck on every corner. <laughs> okay, like no, I'm serious. Seriously, okay. No, I'm like, laughing, but I get, I get you. I'm, I mean, I'm understanding. We, we have a taco truck in that requirement. Well, you know, so do we. But then again, I, I live in one. Of, but then again, I live on in one of the most ethnically diverse uh, counties in America. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, um, and we can get into you know who I think is going to win and and why I think that might be. Um, and that kind of pulls into it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, um, so the rural areas of Georgia, they look at the they look at these uh, pictures of Nancy Pelosi and these video. These, essentially, the ads that I'm seeing, the pro Leffler and the pro. Um, yeah, the the ones you see and don't quite get are the ones firing them up. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it's. It's not quite they're speaking a different language for me, but because they're using English. But I mean, they one, are. Of the things, one of the things to yeah. do with that sort of stuff is understanding that it's a, it's a mythology call. So we see our mythology that's being reinforced, and we're like, yeah, go, go team, this makes sense. And when we see somebody else calling a mythology we don't really adopt, it does feel like they're talking a different language. Like the words – they're reacting to words as if they have meaning that isn't there. See, but I, I would even say it's not a mythology. It's okay. So people in outside of Metro Atlanta, and not even Metro Atlanta, but outside of that blueberry, mm-hmm. a lot of the people outside of that blueberry in Northwest Georgia, okay, a lot of those people outside of that general, genuinely look on Atlanta in fear okay literally they generate they generally look on it in in fear or apprehension so Mm -hmm. that to them when they hear you know nancy pelosi's going to take my gun you know to them that's not a that's not a tribal uh a tribal badge that's and what i what i mean by mythology is that just like you said earlier, that's literally not necessarily going to happen, but that fear is a built mythology. Atlanta is not going to come harm you, but the effects of Atlanta might feel like they could come harm your current culture and beliefs. No, 
See, I would push back on that because, yeah. all right, my father, let me see if I can identify. Okay. Do you see, are you looking at the map of Georgia? Yep. Uh, the, the, the map I sent you. Okay. Do you see Macon? Do you see that blue county of Macon? Yep. With Macon? The one okay. little blueberry there alone. Mm-hmm. So my father grew up in the county directly northwest of that. That's budding it. Yep. Okay. That is, well, that is Lamar County. Um, Lamar County right now is the bedroom, is the bedroom city of Atlanta. When his, <laughs> when his parents died, in, his, my granny died in 2099, somewhere in there. Um, it, Lamar County was totally not a bedroom city of Atlanta. So the thing you need to understand is Atlanta is one of the fast, it is actually, I heard in a meeting before the pandemic, the fastest place, the fastest growing place in, in the Americas. Mm-hmm. Plural. So these people that live in Georgia that don't vote Republican, that don't vote Democrat, they look, they, when they hear Nancy Pelosi's coming for your gun, they, they think Atlanta's coming for your gun. Yeah, and they uh, have actual, they have actual lived experience of Atlanta getting big and moving towards them. And one of the things that in the West that's very cities expanding, pushing people out, we have a very regressive tax structure that forces people out of the city areas because we have a property tax structure that as your the value as the city expands and increases the value of homes, it forces people out of those areas. That this development, there are definitely losers to, and we don't usually attribute that because Atlanta gets wealthier, you get more people in there, you get more but suburbs you, that are wealthy, but you're forcing poor people out of where they live. You are. You're forcing poor, well, but it happens so fast, I'll be honest with you, it essentially happened. Real fast. Here's a, here's a, here's a memory that I have for real. This is a memory that I have as a small child. Okay, and I am... 40, let me remember what I am on a good day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't have any figures anymore. Let me, it doesn't, you know, think about it. it doesn't matter. I can, you know, it, I can legally <laughs> drink. It doesn't matter. Who cares? The point is, is that when I was a very small child, my mother drove me to a doctor in Conyers. Okay. They were literally building the entire city of Conyers. Yeah. While I went, while I went to the doctor. I mean, I've never, I've never seen anything like it before or since. I mean, this or is they... a lived experience for generations where I live. So I grew up in what was country, uh, out I ninety, which is one of our major freeways east to west. It is was real rural, logging town, crazy rural. By the time okay. I graduated college, it's a suburb. I live in a suburb that's now being, because of continual tech pressure, being redeveloped. There's 10 developments within a mile of me, redeveloping what was already a suburb, pushing people further out who live in the town I'm in. It's just a constant process of, you know, as you get all these industries and people who are richer, the bubble of affluence of gets bigger, but with affluence comes cost and just shoves people out and out. There's always someone being... If you're, if, you know, if you're describing Atlanta, which sounds very similar to any West Coast well, city, you're always shoving people out at some 
submarine of and, that. And you are, and and you are, and, and you see that now, or not now, but you see that before the pandemic in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in the inner suburbs, because I don't live in an inner suburb. Yeah, and okay. I would imagine that it's probably more fiery where you live, because like you're describing, people have lived there for generations, opposed to a couple, which still hurts, but it's different than eight or nine. Well, nobody's lived in, well, not nobody. I take, let me take that back. Uh, my county where I live, I have a friend who works in the, in the Atlanta area, uh, transit authority. Okay. And he was telling me because of his job, he was able to see the building patterns in my county. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me some phenomenal percentage of buildings of structures in this county don't don't go back to 1970. Yeah. Like a huge, and you can see that driving around, that there's really not very many structures at all that, that go back to 1970. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you the truth. Where I live, if you're, if you observe, if you, if you're not driving and you, and you're sitting in the passenger seat and you're, and you're looking at the lights, the street lights, you can actually see where the dominant street light changes or the type of street light changes yeah and that's because that's because as late as 1990 my street was where civilization came to an end yeah i mean okay i mean i'm i think this is a shared experience across because so the community i live in now is called renton and it was it was a boeing working town in the 90s right Boeing was here as our major industry. This was the this was where people lived near Boeing. One of the Boeing plants was here. Packard is here that makes trucks, and so it was yeah. a factory town in the nineties. But now, a couple you know twenty years later, it's being completely redeveloped from you know houses maybe built in the eighties now for brand new million dollar mansions for tech people, and it's so weird to see perfectly good town ripped apart and redeveloped. Like, it's not like they're redeveloping some well, old-rooted town. It's a town from a generation ago. And that's that's because of uh, gentrification. I mean, that's... Yeah. And here's something that I think we're... I mean, I think we're seeing it together, you and me, the, the lived experience. Mm-hmm. I'll bet you anything that our parents, that your parents and my parents, if they were to get together, and you and me, if I if we were to get together... Yeah. The two of us would have a massively different opinion about gentrification than our parents would. The part that's different, I think, is that my parents aren't from, and most of the parents of the people around me in the West, Seattle's not that old of a city, right? So Atlanta's new, like you're describing, but Georgia's old. Washington is relatively new, and Seattle's relatively new. So we don't well, have that, like, my parents would be very different because my parents are the people who moved in from Michigan, from Colorado, right? Oh, okay. So, so the thing, okay. So the thing I didn't tell you, <laughs> the thing I didn't tell you that's, that's important to Georgia. Yeah. All right. Is that Atlanta was founded before the Civil War, about uh, a few years before the Civil War. Okay, Decatur, which is a bedroom city of Atlanta, which is where Emory is, is much, much older than that. Yep. And it's one of the oldest, it's one of the oldest cities this far north and west in the state. Now, 
Having said that, there is what is today a neighborhood in Atlanta, which is um, called Buckhead. Now, that neighborhood used to be a city, okay? Used to be a, a, a city. That city was created around the Buckhead Tavern, which is a, which there is a restaurant now that has its name, which is not the same Buckhead Tavern of which I refer. Okay. The Buckhead Tavern I refer, the historic Buckhead Tavern is very old. And there were people living around that tavern for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So there are parts of Atlanta that are, that are, you know, very, very old indeed. Um, yeah, that's know. what I was, I was getting at was that it's not that everyone in Georgia has lived there forever. It's that you have this additional tension that in the West we don't have because no one uh, has that history in Seattle. Everyone has maybe two generations of maybe most most of my parents group would have moved to Seattle. They would have all been people from Detroit, if a Detroit somewhere. It was or, all that where or Baltimore or somewhere like that. Yeah, somewhere California especially um, is a big one. It's typical okay. for my parents' generation. Detroit isn't uncommon, but then California is really where people come from. But we don't have that that extra grain of people who live there forever who are watching this who like you said might fear it might embrace it which could be different where they're at but we don't have that longer american history because obviously geographically out in the west the states and the migration is much later all right so getting back to what we're talking about yep so this gentleman that i spoke with whose name is king williams he's very knowledgeable i highly recommend him as a guest on your podcast um he enlightened me to the idea that you can have the reality of the situation because of what we call what we euphemistically, in my opinion, call local control. Uh, you can have people who have a 12th grade education, who, who graduated with the same honors and everything else in the state of Georgia, but they don't have the same toolkit in the head. Mm-hmm. They just don't. Yeah. Um, remember that Atlanta, Metro Atlanta is becoming more and more affluent. We're getting, because of the work of Zell Miller, we're getting more and more people from outside the state, blah, blah, blah. So while there is no structural barrier to people from outside Metro Atlanta moving into Metro Atlanta from the state, there might well be a, if it's not here yet, there might well be a um, an educational barrier, okay? Because you know, might be a what? I don't know. I heard what an educational said. barrier. An educational barrier. Yeah. There, there might well be an educational barrier, and there might there might well be, if not now, later, this sort of like a how do you want to say it? Like the apartments cost nowhere close to the apartments in even Athens, right? Mm-hmm. And we're not even talking about the apartments in DeKalb or, or Fulton yeah. or, you know. Um, so you might end up with a, with a, a miniature Los Angeles type situation. 
And the thing that, that upsets it, and I use Los Angeles as an example on purpose, is because now the, more movies are being shot in Metro Atlanta than anywhere else in the world. Well, pre-COVID. Yeah, but I'm, I, hate yeah. To, I, I hate to say this, but movie theaters might go away, but movies are not going to go away. No. I mean, <laughs> it's also a myth. Vancouver, which is near Seattle and Canada, is a huge cinema area, too. Like, it's, Hollywood doesn't truly dominate it. And it's interesting to hear that Georgia's doing a lot of it, too. It's all the Marvel movies, just about it, were filmed in Atlanta. Yeah. And it, Marvel hits different for me because it's I can watch cheaper. a Marvel. Well, Marvel hits different for me because I can watch a Marvel movie and I can pick out where I've lived. <laughs> and I, yeah. And I call The Walking Dead the stalking dead because they follow me around. And it's like, especially in season one, it's like you're following me around. Stop it. Yeah, that is kind of funny. It's a different for Seattle where they superimpose Mount Rainier and uh, the Space Needle in shots that they don't actually exist in for us. That's beautiful. They want to show all this stuff. And we're like, that's not an angle you can have. Those things are not there. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, so I think I've basically, oh, well, I haven't covered this part. There is right now, as I'm sitting here right now, a difference between northern Atlanta and southern Atlanta. Okay? Now, somebody in south Atlanta, somebody in the southern metro, is going to have a much more pronounced southern accent. Okay? All right. And the land was cheaper. Okay. Um, you know. Yeah. But when you look at the top end of that blueberry, that's where a lot of your northern, uh, folks and your, your, your better educated, uh, better, you know, higher earned. White collar. Not all affluent white collar for sure. I mean, yeah. not all, but a lot. Okay. Now they live in the northern metro. Say around where, like I just said, where Lucy McBath is and where, uh, Hank Johnson is and where, let me see. You're gonna notice something. Lucy McBath, Hank Johnson, uh, let me see. Okay. Lucy McBath, Hank Johnson, he just quit. The guy who just quit. Oh god, let me remember his name. Um, just give me a minute. <laughs> well, but he was the exception to the rule. Yeah. So these people were all, um, all of a sudden, like Metro Atlanta had been, is represented, Northern Metro is represented by, uh, Democrats. Mm-hmm. Except for, let me, just bear with me, okay? Let me just Google it. See, we're done with topic. Atlanta. Repre, repre. Okay. Um, okay. Here's, a, here's what you're going to notice. Here's what you're going to notice. All right. I'm looking at a congressional map of Georgia. 
Okay, the Georgia congressional map is the the county the congressional districts get smaller. Okay, okay. Yep. So the the sixth is Democratic, the seventh is Democratic, the fourth is Democratic, the fifth is Democratic, the thirteenth. Let me look at the thirteenth. Um. The 13th, I think, is either Republican or Democratic. Well, it's a binary decision, right? <laughs> yeah, I um, say, you guys have the No, the 13th, years. okay, the 13th is Democratic. Um, the 13th is Democratic. All right. So the only person that represents Metro Atlanta, that represents anywhere in Metro Atlanta, is um let me see well Doug Collins isn't there anymore um let me look at the 11th because I think that's the only one all right let me look at the 11th real quick All right, so Barry Loudermilk is the only sitting, currently sitting Republican member of Congress that represents Metro Atlanta. All right. Sitting today. He's in the 11th. Okay. So that'll tell you how Democratic that area is. Now, let's get into why it is, okay, if you don't mind. Sure, yeah. Now what happens now to be a concert, to be a, a Republican in Metro Atlanta, you are perceived as a smart person. There are people in Metro Atlanta who used to vote Republican because they thought Republican was the party of smart. Okay? Yep. So their kids all went to college. Now, if you're if you're say my age or a little bit younger and you're sitting in Metro Atlanta Right, you're sitting in Gwinnett, or you're sitting in Cobb, or wherever, and you're my age, and you're watching, and you're watching, uh, you know, Purdue or, or Loeffler talking about how Biden's going to listen to the scientists. Yeah, that's not going to sound smart to you, is it? I mean, <laughs> not really. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a smart thing. Okay. I mean, for me, it sounds like a political, like, call-out and not a plan of, like, scientifically well, based. Well, let's remember that you and I are more politically educated than a lot of people. We probably are, yeah. We're looking okay. at it at a different angle. Right. So when you hear Kelly Loeffler saying, you know, vote for me or Joe Biden will listen to the scientists, you're thinking, oh, cool. So if I don't vote for you and vote for who? Raphael Warnock. Well... You know, I'm not I'm not a racist person. My friend has a black girlfriend, or my friend has a black boyfriend, or I know I have black friends, or you know, blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. And your parents might have they your parents might very well have done white flight, but you yourself you you live you know you remember a much more uh, racially progressive and safer Atlanta. You don't think of Atlanta the same way as your parents do. Who live in Metro Atlanta, but they might not have gone to see the sport. The you know they wouldn't have gone downtown 
because they thought of his own sex, right? Where you don't think that as a rule, okay? Again, this is total generalizations here, but you know what I'm saying. I'm going with it. So here's what I, you know, here's what I think. Depending on who shows up to vote, okay, because you got to think, um, Donald Trump actually depressed his own vote because he told yep. people to to not vote by mail, so people didn't want to vote in person. Okay, because you know. All right, and let's remember if you were sitting in a college, if you were sitting in a high school class like I was with a PhD who who worked at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, right? you learned about how viruses move and change in ninth grade biology. And you might have majored in something else in college, but you had a good enough background in biology that you could Google, what about this virus? <laughs> you know, and yep. you, learned, you learned more about the virus, right? I'm not trained in science, but I'm trained enough in other things to know that science is important and we need to care about a virus that nobody, you know, you see what I'm saying? Yep. So what? So depending on if, because Joe Biden normally won by twelve thousand votes. So depending on if the people who would have voted for Trump who didn't vote because they didn't want to turn out in a pandemic, and depending on if, um, depending on if uh, the Joe Jorgensen people, who was the Libertarian candidate. Depending on if the Joe Jorgensen people vote Republican in the runoff, um, I honestly think I think you'd have another group in there, which is people who are conservative who were turned off by Donald Trump for conservative beliefs. For right, and I mean, here's something I nationally. And thank you. Here's something I haven't said yet in this whole talk that we've had. Mm-hmm. There were a whole lot of people, especially in Cobb County and in some other northern metro counties who voted Democrat exactly once on that ballot, and that was for Joe Biden. Yep. Now, so it's entirely possible that both of these gentlemen or yeah, both of these gentlemen might lose being Ossoff and Warnock. That's entirely possible. But I honestly think that Warnock has a better chance than Ossoff because Ossoff is going for the Obama Democrat. Yeah, it makes Os- sense. Yeah. Ossoff is positioning himself as the heir apparent to Obama, at least locally, where Warnock is positioning himself as, as a person who came from literally nothing, who is a faith leader in this community, who... Um, and he actually has a very interesting commercial well, where, he, where right. he shows Kelly Leffler in, in his congregation. Yeah, I think, I think a Democrat <laughs> faith leader crosses into that conservative bound a lot better. I mean, I've, I'm not from Georgia, but when people told me that, like, Obama had won and flipped Georgia, I was like, no. But I, you know... Seeing the politics of it, I could get it, and it totally makes sense that somebody who crossed both barriers, like you're saying, a faith leader, Democrat, a Georgia Democrat, has a much better shot of winning than a Democrat in the mold of a national Democrat. Well, that's that's okay. entirely that's entirely true. Um, 
I mean, personally, personally, I, I think, first of all, Ossoff resides in one of the most affluent districts in the country. So he's not anybody's definition of the working man's Democrat, number one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the thing he does have going for him is there are an awful lot of people all of a sudden in this state who have gotten religion about this virus, mm-hmm. even since November. Yeah, he's got so, momentum. I mean, Biden won the national presidency, so that's a certain momentum shift. I mean, but Biden won by less. Here's something I'll throw. I'll put this into perspective. Uh, Biden won by 12,000 people, mm-hmm. which is less people than fit in the basketball arena downtown. <laughs> yep. So let's, let's consider, okay, it's fewer people, 12,000 people is actually less people than would show up for a Thrasher's game when the Thrasher's were here. Yeah. So, no, I mean, it, it's interesting to hear because there's a lot of, similar dynamics? I mean, it sounds a lot like Georgia is a microcosm of the country in a lot of ways. Well, it didn't start, it wasn't that way 20 years ago. No. (laughs) It wasn't that way 20 years ago. I mean, Um, a lot of the history you're talking about, Atlanta is funny to me because this is the life experience of the cities on the West Coast for generations. That's just people pouring into the cities and that's our culture on the West Coast. It's just Constant change, constant rebuild, constant people pouring in. That we kind of lose our roots because of our history. We don't have any roots of Washington. We just have whatever Washington is changing into this next generation. Yeah. Yeah. So who do you think is going to win these two races? You kind of said a little bit earlier. Well, I mean, I okay, I'll, I'll tell you. I think, well, I'm going to say two, I'm, I'm sorry, you wanted me, you told me to do this like, like it's a pregame Sunday. And you can do pregame, you can pick them, you can give me a spread if you want. I usually do spread, 60-40, Well, I, I, here's what I'll say. Cause I looked and the last polling I saw had both of the candidates up, both, both of the, 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 both of the, uh, challengers, uh, ahead of their incumbents. Um, but now here's what I'll say. I could totally see a day. I could totally see one of, one of two things happening. And this is how I'll say it. If the Joe Jorgensen people don't vote. So if the libertarian candidate folks don't vote. And if the Trump people who voted for Trump in the primary in 16 and the general in 16 who didn't vote at all in 20 if they don't vote I could see Warnock and Ossoff winning now having said that I could also see um, both of the Republicans winning quite handily because there's a phenomenon where people don't say that they're voting for Trump and they vote for mm-hmm. Trump. Um, there's that. I could see, I don't think Loeffler, 
if any one of them wins, and it sounds crazy to say it, but if any one of them wins, I think Warnock's going to win. Because if either of the two challengers win, because Loeffler, I don't think, is, is representative of the state at all in terms of how she thinks or in terms of how she's from, where she's from or what, I, you know, any of that. Um, where Warnock is. And I think Warnock, I honestly think Warnock and Purdue, if I had to, to say it, and I think there might even be people going to the polls who pick a Democrat and a Republican, because one thing people, one thing the conservatives in Metro Atlanta tend to like is divided government in Washington. I mean, I'm, I'm in that same boat. But so that, so that would give who? I mean, we're a little less familiar. Warnock and Purdue, that's a, Warnock's the Democrat, Purdue. So Warnock is the Democrat and, and Purdue is the Republican. Okay. Um, now, yeah, because I, I mean, Loeffler comes on, comes on the radio and says things that are, like, I don't hear Purdue talking about how the virus is the flu. Yeah. Where I do hear that with Loeffler. She's very Trump acolyte. Well, she she tries to be. Um, now, all, Purdue they is. They all try to be. <laughs> she she had to run to the left. She had to run to the right of, um, oh, he he could have been, he could have died in, in, he could have grown old and died in, the, in that seat of his. Um, she had to run to the right of this guy who, in the in the primary, in the in her primary, she had to run to the right of this man who is very 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 conservative. And yeah, she no, it sounds like primary politics. You got to differentiate with some okay. extreme of the party. So right. Then she and comes she's back not, in the general election and can't avoid what she said. She's not tacking to the middle, and I yeah. think you have to tack to the middle. Um. Where Warnock is tacking to the middle, and Ossoff, Ossoff doesn't have, and that's the that's the thing with Ossoff. Ossoff was a researcher. He was a he was a documentarian and a researcher. I'm sure he's a very bright human. I'm I'm sure he would be a capable representative, but I, he doesn't have that. When Lucy McBath won, people knew who Lucy McBath was. Mm-hmm. That right? charisma. Well, that, and she was in the community because her her son was shot, and she was yeah. in the community constantly campaigning for, you know, gun safety and like that. Politics right. is local. Okay. You feel better about somebody you know. And that's the truth. And also, mm-hmm. just he, he doesn't. I don't see. I don't. You know, and from an outside I, perspective, he reminds me of the guy from Texas. Both of them seem very well-built politicians, but they give me no warmth. Like they, I don't get the Bill Clinton come into my house, I'll put my arm around you and talk to you, right? I just get like this very—they're very much in the mold of Obama, except Obama could give great speeches that would pull you in. Where they're very technocratic and cold to a certain. Well, should that okay? That's it. Ossoff appeals to the technocrat. Yeah, Ossoff which is the Obama the, mold, except Obama, in addition, gave great speeches that pulled people in. And, you know, and I've heard Ossoff speak, and Ossoff is a very intelligent person who knows a lot of things and, and can express yeah. those things, you know, in, 
not in a passionate mold. But not that charisma from a preacher that pulls you in, right? Exactly, exactly. Preacher mold pulls you into the flock. You feel warm and fuzzy. Exactly, and that's exactly right. Yeah. And I have my outside perspective of from a national snippet, but I'm like, "Mm." well, I mean, I've seen I've seen Warnock speak on television. I've I've seen a speech he gave on television, and I've seen a speech Ossoff gave on television. And I've seen, you know, I've seen Purdue speak, and I've seen Lawler speak. And the thing, you know, the thing that I get from Warnock is I get, this is a man who, he's he's of Atlanta, right? He's yeah, of Atlanta. That's a huge thing. Right. But he grew up in public housing. Got a good that, story to go with a politician? He's Another got a good plus. story. I mean, yeah. right? I, I mean, mean, America likes the pick yourself up by the bootstrap story. Okay, they so like success. All right, so, so I'm you, just gonna. If you started low and went high, that's a winning combo. I'm gonna. Okay, here's what I'm gonna say. This is how I'm gonna say it. I think of the two challengers, Warnock has the better chance. Mm-hmm. I think. That I could really see it. I could honestly really see um, Purdue and Warnock being the two winners. I, I really could. Um, I but I could just as easily see Loeffler and Purdue coming out. Yeah. I will say that if if Ossoff and Warnock both win, that there is a real change in this state that has everything in the world to do with the fact that the people who were the children of the folks who live in in northern metro Atlanta are not a part of the conservative politics of this state. They're just not. Yeah. They're, they're not dialed into it. They're not. They would look at it and they would think of it as, as something they can't touch it. Like they can't. They can't look at it and and see where it would even kind of make sense. No, and that's what I makes sense. That's what I'll say. It's uh, I think this our states are at different different pendulums of the same thing, but it's all very familiar. Except you flip the script, our city's bigger, so we're democratic. But a Republican, a Trump Republican, could never win in our state. You would have to be attacked to the left conservative but a fiscal conservative who had you know technocratic beliefs could easily win the state as a republican but you're not going to get a trump person ever coming close like we had one this time and he got like 30 percent of the vote or something well so and that's what i'll say if you had if you had um a senator and i think that's the future of the republican party in georgia I, i honestly do is if you take a fiscal conservative person who who uh doesn't have that who doesn't say things like don't vote for the other guy because they'll listen to the scientist who yeah. says things yeah. <laughs> right yeah, i mean you, what you really need and the difficulty is and why our state doesn't have this is you need a business conservative who can touch the religious conservative and make that coalition. And that's hard to find. 
And I don't, I don't know why. I, mean, I don't know. I'm with you because people-wise, I encounter so many uh, people. Like To me, I am fiscally conservative and lean on that side, but I'm generally socially liberal. And there's plenty of people that fit that mold or a mold where they're, you know, a little socially closed, but, you know, conservative, but they're, you know, okay with public programs and all that sort of stuff. Like, those are the two molds of people that I find. But because of our primary system, just like you described earlier, right, our, this guy wins the Republican primary in our state because that's what wins in the primary. But then when they come to the general election, they just get destroyed. Well, in Georgia, I mean, in Georgia, you actually do have people that you actually do have people that are that are culturally conservative and also fiscally conservative. Like that actually is a mm-hmm. real person, and there's yeah. a lot of those. There's a whole lot of them, here. but I they mean, but tend with those people. You get into the you know you can get you can get those people into talking about different ways to solve those problems that might not be government. Like they, people are generally looking for problems to be solved, but then you get these politicians that just cater to nothing. Like to me, the challenge is: why don't we get people? even if it's a political opinion you don't agree with, that are trying to accomplish things. That's the part that baffles me. Well, because in Georgia anyway, you always there's always that group of person, that's, and that's what I was trying to say. There's always that group of conservative that generally, that genuinely, genuinely in their bones, mm-hmm. honestly just wants to be left alone. Just leave me alone. Yeah. Let me live on, let me live on this farm or let me live in this house and have my job as a mechanic or have my job as a this or that. And that's the thing I didn't touch on is it's a lot easier in the rest of the state to, to have some, you know, to be, to not be a college graduate and to have a a very, a very nice house. Yeah. Or maybe not a very nice house, but you know, Uh, nice. Yeah. I mean, nice, nice enough. Right. Yeah. It's it's easy in the rest of the state. I mean, and that's keep going. Sorry. To me, that's the next move. Like to me, that's the next big shift. Is if the state can figure out how to move high speed internet out to places like where my dad's from, okay, you're going to see a real flood out of, out of Metro Atlanta, like a real flood out. Because it's getting insane to, in terms of cost of housing. Yeah. I mean, you know. My houses and taxes have doubled in seven years, so I get it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I've got a buddy who, who lives in downtown Atlanta, and he was, before the pandemic, he was looking at moving. And then the pandemic hit, and he's like, nope, I'm not looking at places. <laughs> Yeah, it's tough. I mean, that's, like, that's I'm not looking at places always, in the plague. That's, that's the thing that always gets to me is that, you know, nobody's work, looking out for a working class, make houses affordable, not an investment piece for rich people. Like, this politics is so underrepresented. It's baffling to me everywhere across the country. Just well, you need- designing the system for working people. Okay, here's a person you either need to talk to or you need to listen to this podcast. <laughs> I did a podcast with a housing attorney. 
Yeah. Uh, a tenant-facing housing attorney. You either need to listen to that podcast or get her on your podcast, or, or and I can maybe hook that up. But I I, I learned a lot from her. And yeah, the thing I learned is that the banks don't want to – the banks no longer operate in supply and demand economics with housing. The thing is is that our federal banking laws are structured to make properties investments, not long-term housing. So you're actually incentivized to do what I see around here, which is tear down a perfectly fine 30-year-old house and build a new one. And the only way the math works for banks, because they don't want – they don't want you to have to build a house on a property of low value. They need the house, the assets they're giving you the loan for, to be worth enough that if they take it back, they can recoup their loss if the, if the loan fails. So when you're in a state like mine where the, the value of the property increases because of property taxes and, and, and market forces that increase the demand on the, on the lot, then you have to build a house that is two to three times the lot's value to make sense to the bank. So as you increase the value of the lot, the house has to become these million-dollar mansions out where I live, 20 miles from downtown Seattle. And so they re- what they're doing, what these laws do, is that instead of building these, these duplexes and these places for population for supply of housing for people, they tear down a, a house and they build a mega-mansion it's a million dollars to work the math for that lot. And so the density of housing decreases, which then increases the price further and forces more people because we're a property tax state. So if you have your old house grandma living there with your roots, your taxes keep going up with that explosion of value. Like I said, mine doubled in seven years. You can think of somebody who bought a house here 30 years ago. You have a 1,100-foot small house from the 70s, you're now paying the lot taxes for the mega mansions being built next to you. And so that forces you to leave. Well, it's funny because we have that same phenomenon here. We have that exact exact same phenomenon here, Mm -hmm. except you have that. It really got going before what what we think of as the Great Recession. Yeah, the housing boom before that was insane. Before the pandemic even, like you had, I mean, houses right around me were going for insane amounts of money. And, I mean, I I am remembered by all of, I I think I told you this before, but I was at a party right after the Great Recession, um, right after the the stock crash. And I said, well, the sad fact is a house only costs so much money and anything above that is an investment vehicle. And mm-hmm. virtually all of my friends, even people that weren't at that party, <laughs> yeah, have, have I mean, quoted me saying that. I was in school looking at people like, this is insane. Like, this can't be. Like, And the question I ask around where I live now is, who? what jobs do all these people have? Because it's not like they build a couple apartment buildings. It's the entire 30-mile metro area that's being redeveloped like this. And I'm like, who are these people that can afford a million-dollar house? And what happens when the economy tanks for a moment? These people are all going to be underwater. But. Well, in talking to Cheryl, um, what I learned is that the banking, the house banking system is no longer tied to, to supply and demand. 
So essentially, the essentially what's happening is the banks are going to be just fine if the economy craters and all these people Maybe. have to. The bank always writes it to try to win on both sides, right? Well, like a all bank I, run like 2009 could mess with them. I mean, all I'll say is, you know, and I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it badly. So what I'd say is to go listen to my podcast where she talked about it. Yeah, and I would generally agree with that. Like, banks <laughs> win both ways. That's how they structure the deal. Yeah, but... And, and it's totally right. Like, I live in an area, I, what I do professionally, I review a lot of the sales. A lot, Most of the sales of these houses are investments, and then they rent them out to people. Multiple people, a lot of the time, are becoming more and more like New York. Yeah, well, that's what's so crazy about Metro Atlanta, is it's actually cheaper to rent an entire house than it is to rent a one-bedroom apartment. That makes sense because you probably have all that investment money building houses randomly. It's just it's it's so strange. Yeah, it's it. it I mean, <laughs> what you're saying is right. It's it's investment principles that it generally operates. Yeah, but it's tough. I, that's my difficulty when I listen to all these. Right, when I talk about it, I, I enjoy talking about it. I enjoy the conversation we had today about it, learning about it. But my biggest frustration is that, to me. There is no force in American politics looking out for working people, looking out to change the rules technocratically to make sense. But they just seem to want to give you a fish and make it, put you on your way. But they're not looking to change the fundamentals of the laws in favor of working people to have opportunity. Well, I wonder if what's going to happen – I wonder what's going to change as you start getting more and more – because now you're even getting countries – like countries' international budgets are are you know like donating to presidential candidates. Yeah, on both <laughs> sides of the like both sides of the aisle though. So it's I even I even dollars. so I even wonder if if that's going to change our politics or if um, I think it already has. I think that that the disconnect to me is that people buy into these surface and. I say surface level. I don't mean that the issue is surface level. I mean that the argument is surface level. They bring up abortion or whatever, which polarizes people, but they're not actually doing anything about it. They're just bringing it up to pull your emotions, right? All the campaigning is to, like you said, follow the science, don't follow the science. It's just the flu. It's All of politics are these extremes that we then argue over, but the politics behind the scenes isn't actually reflecting that yeah. it's reflecting the money that they're giving and so we're yeah. focused on these arguing amongst ourselves divided and we allow the power and the money to operate behind the scenes changing all these laws to the, their best benefit and we're still stuck on arguing over some surface level argument for years i mean that's what's so insane to me is like as i say it you know i, I say at some point, it's going to quit being 1968. And what I mean by that is we're arguing about politics as though it's still 1968. In a lot of ways, yeah. And it well, isn't. Maybe it's the tactic of those politicians that's continuing to say we're not learning to get out of that, right? Because that was a very polarizing talking over important issues, but they were surface level where they weren't addressed. We argue over them. And the government did a lot of things since then that that has changed.
change the system in the favor for investment people and not working people. But see, and that was my question before, was when the investors become people from out of the country. When right? did it? No, when. I say when the yeah. investors become people from out of the country, right? Yeah. Are the politics going to change then? No. My area is investors from out of the country. The Chinese money that was in Vancouver is in Seattle increasing all of our prices. And it is seen as better investments for us. And the damage to the middle class being able to live here is not even taken into the calculation. You have to live. If you make, if you make minimum wage, and remember, we're one of the highest in the country. If you make minimum wage in Seattle, you either live in one of those horrific places I described last time where it's awful if you're not drugged with a bunch of drug people all around you, high crime, no police, or you live 40, 30, 40, 50 miles away, which we don't have commuting in freeway infrastructure. So you're talking poor people generally commute three to four hours a day, and where we live doesn't have jobs. It's all in the core. So they, poor people have to be at the furthest ring away from the system, city. There's no good mass transit. They drive in. They get their job. They come back. We have toll freeways to avoid traffic and things that cost a bunch of money, too. We're one of the most regressive tax structures in the country for poor people. And then the entire setup for housing is around drawing in investments, including international investments. So it, it's, it's just worse when the international investments come in because there's more people driving investment prices up, trying to buy the investments, and there's less stuff put to, to developing housing or infrastructure that could allow people to live further away. It hasn't, and international money in Vancouver and in Seattle has not improved the lives of the people that live there at all. It doesn't drive up tax revenue for the government, so they enjoy having much higher tax revenue. But I'm wondering, okay, I'm wondering if a politician could come along and say, wait a second, those yeah. are the Chinese. Uh, those aren't Donald American Trump people. made hay over China. Before Donald Trump, China was the greatest blessing to the American economy. Well, yeah, I mean, sure. But it's one of the main things that drove a lot of his politics is that he was talking about China for people in the Rust Belt. But then That's chapter two is, yeah, but then chapter two is, right? Okay. So, like, in my state, if you managed to get put high, if you could somehow get the, get the Republicans to tie in, to condescend, to tie in, um, when the Republicans figure out that this is real, this shift is real, mm -hmm. that you're not going to get people living in a city, you know, <laughs> for, 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 so, what you, so what you have to do is you have to move them out of the city. You have to move these people out of the city. The way to do that is to get high-speed Internet and put it in the country. That takes a bunch of money to the government. The hard thing is a hard-right so, Republican. Yeah, but if you think tactically, I right, agree with you. They're, for, they're for socialism if it benefits them, and this benefits them. Yeah. There's no way it wouldn't. There's no way in the world. We There's actually no way. in Washington State in the 90s had this program where we extended the town I lived in in the, in the 90s, like I said, was rural. But we extended high – it wasn't high-speed in the time, but 
internet to almost everywhere in the state. And it did allow for that spread. I don't know that it changed politics exactly, but it certainly is a big benefit that I would encourage every state to do. All right. Well, Jacob, it's been, it's been a peach. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So to recap, I actually, I believe it'll be, I could totally see Warnock and, um, Purdue both winning their races. But then again, I could see Warnock and, and I think Ossoff is going to have the higher hill to climb. Let's say that. Okay. He's going to have a higher hill. Because I am, I am rooting for a split shovel. So. I, I think Ossoff would have the higher hill to climb. But I also think I think there's been so much news come out about the virus just in the last little while. And there you know mm-hmm. I don't it depends on who shows up. And yeah, it we'll sounds see. like a dumb answer. But anyway, hey, it's been a peach. It's been awesome. We'll see Tuesday. I appreciate your time and uh, I'm gonna unhook the recording. Sounds great.